that context, while often used regarding physical healing, and we would not deprecate that marvelous ministry of the person of the Spirit, Romans 8.11 is talking about the resurrection. He's looking for the time when he will give life to this mortal body. This mortal body right now is in a state of decaying and dying. The outward man, Paul said, is perishing, but the inward man is renewed day by day. All right, uh, now, finally, <laughs> I want to bring you to a, a discussion of the engifting. There are three categories of gift ministry in the New Testament Scripture. The first one is in Ephesians chapter 4, and you can note this on this paper if you wish. I'm so sorry that I was not uh, careful to bring you that material as well. In any case, Ephesians chapter 4 uh, are gift ministries given by the Son to the body of Christ as a whole. If you'll have a look there with me, please, to the fourth of Ephesians, and we'll look at the words, and I think it's uh, self-explanatory. The context start with, starts with verse 7. Ephesians 4. But to each one of us grace was given. Now you remember this measure of grace. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So here is that grace measure that has to do with the gift ministry as opposed to the faith measure that has to do with what you do with it and where you minister with it. So to each one of us, grace is given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, let captivity captive, and he gave gifts unto men. Who is he who ascended on high? The Lord Jesus, obviously. So it's he that's giving gifts unto men. <coughs> now that he ascended on high, <coughs> I'm sorry. What does it mean but that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who has ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he himself, that is the Lord Jesus himself, gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the doing of the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come to the unity of the faith. Now, these gift ministries are given by the Lord Jesus to the body of Christ as a whole. Uh, universal body. Let me just make some comment about these uh, gift ministries, if I may, by way of simple illustration. I'll throw it out to you. It probably goes without saying in this group, but I'll say it anyhow. Um, I liken these ministries to a building, since he's talking in that context in this epistle about the building of God and, and our being uh, fitly joined together and so forth. The building and the body are often described by the Apostle Paul. Uh, so I look at it in terms of a building going up, and the Apostle is the architect. Uh, the Apostle is the guy who sets down the plans and lays the foundation. Paul said, I've laid the foundation, others build thereon, take heed how you build. So the Apostle is the one who gives the plans, as Paul refer, referred to himself, you recall, as uh, the uh, master builder. The Greek word translated master builder in 1 Corinthians 3 is architecton. That's a Greek word. Obviously, architect. Literally, it translates chief carpenter. But uh, uh, the emphasis is he's the one who has taken the idea from the designer and put it on paper. And God the Father is the designer, and the Apostle Paul put it on paper so we'd know what to do with it. So Paul says, I've laid the foundation, take it how you build. So the apostle is the architect, and he lays initially the foundation. This is the shape it'll take. Uh, the prophet, 
is the building inspector. He's the fellow who comes on the job and says, well, fellas, you're doing a great job. It looks exactly like it ought to look. Or, he says, you got that window there, and it ought to be over there. Move it. Nobody ever likes a prophet. Prophet speaks to edification, exhortation, and comfort. <laughs> We're always glad for the edification and the comfort. The exhortation sometimes rubs us a little wrong. Uh, the evangelist is the building supplier. He's the fellow who goes out and gets the material and brings it and dumps it and says, you're doing a great job. I'll see you later. The evangelist is always gone. Always gone. You know, I heard a preacher say one time, I'm getting sick and tired of these evangelists bringing all these fish and dumping them on my doorstep to clean. <laughs> I thought that was right cute. <laughs> the uh, uh, pastor is the... Uh, how you call that the infirmary yes he's the fellow who binds up all the injuries on the job he he's the the uh, uh, I want to say doctor uh, medic yes he's the medic uh, that looks after all of those unfortunate incidences and then finally the teacher is the on-the-job trainer he's the fellow that instructs the journeyman in the job that they're supposed to perform so all taken together, these are very necessary ministries. No one can get along without the other. Some present-day philosophy suggesting that we don't have apostles and prophets anymore. Well, by the same token, we haven't come yet to the unity of the faith either. So it would indicate to me that we need both of them. And the impression is sometimes left that an apostle uh, is an inspired, infallible speaker. That's nonsense. Certainly the apostles wrote New Testament record but not all the writers of the New Testament record were apostles, i.e. Luke, not so named. Uh, the uh, Mark, not so named. The idea of an apostle is one who goes or is sent forth with a message, that's all. Epaphroditus is referred to as Paul's apostle. Uh, some were sent by the Lord, some were sent by men, but they nonetheless were men sent to originate work, and that's the whole idea of an apostle. He goes into virgin territory to originate work. Paul said, I've determined to preach Christ where he has not been named. The apostle lays the foundation of a new work. All right, get away from that. Come with me now to the second category with which you're quite familiar in 1 Corinthians and chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. Now, once again... <coughs> Here is a category of gift ministry, and whereas in the first one we had four men with five gifts, and I can't take time to talk about that now. It's in fact four gifted men with five different gifts that are given to the body of Christ. Um, the last two going with one man, pastor, teacher going with one man. Here we have nine ministries which by the Holy Spirit are given to individuals. Now let me contrast that. In Ephesians 4, we have five ministries given by the person of the Lord Jesus to the body of Christ as a whole. Here in 1 Corinthians, we have nine ministries given by the Holy Spirit to individual believers. And uh, I'm going to give you another paper to make up for my mistake today, so I'll not get into those in detail right now. But they can be divided in terms of maturity. Uh, 2, 5, and 2. The first two, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, belonging to mature believers. 
sons in the faith. The second category of five belonging to adolescents in the faith. And the final two belonging to children in the faith. Now, I know what somebody's thinking. Well, is it only children then that speak in tongues? No, 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 I didn't say that. You have to start somewhere. And you start in childhood with the gift of tongues. Paul said, I speak in tongues more than you all. In other words, you don't lay down what God gives you in your initial uh, introduction to the work of the Holy Spirit. It will increase in its effectiveness, in its blessedness, in its purpose as the believer exercises that gift. So while he gives you the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues in the infancy in the body of Christ, as you grow into those various other gifts, you don't lose these. So don't think I'm trying to say that it only belongs to children. I'm not saying that at all. But God does not give the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge to infantile believers because they are both very dangerous gifts. And if not exercised by someone who knows how to handle them and knows the Lord and the ways of the Lord, they can be very injurious. And the gifts and the callings of God, you will remember, without repentance. When God gives a man a gift, he has a responsibility to exercise that gift through the person of the Holy Spirit and with understanding. Uh, the Corinthians were not doing that, and that was one of the reasons the Apostle Paul found it necessary to rebuke them. He said, you come behind in no gift, you're increased in all wisdom and in all knowledge, but... And they were in a great deal of trouble because they were not properly exercising what the Lord had given to them. So what we're trying to say is that as one grows in grace and in knowledge, then he qualifies for additional gifts as he matures in the Lord. I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but I talked about it anyway. So this is a category of gifts that are given by the person of the Holy Spirit to individual believers. Now come with me, please, to Romans 12 once again. You all out there? I feel like I'm dumping an awful lot in a short period of time. I'm kind of fast. All right, Romans 12 again, and we've read from verse 3. So if I could hop you down once more to verse 6. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that's given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, prophecy let us prophesy in proportion to our faith, or ministry, let us use it. I'm sorry, let us use it in our ministering. Ministering is serving, of course. The word is deacon. Uh, he who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, that's to call alongside of is literally the uh, rendering of the word. You see someone uh, moving out of his proper sphere or moving into a sphere of danger, then you call him alongside. You say, hey, come away from that place or come with me to this place. Uh, you're encouraging them in the right direction. He who gives, do it with liberality. He who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I believe that uh, one brother has translated the word, I have lead here, you have it as rules, in the King James, I think, um, as organize. I think that's a very practical rendering of the word. He who organizes, let him do it with diligence. Some people just have the ability to organize. All right, if you'll back up with me, You'll notice, please, from verse uh, uh, 3. For I say through the grace given unto me to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one the measure of faith. Now, who's giving these gift ministries? The Father. So in chapter 4 of Ephesians, gift ministries given by the Lord Jesus to the body of Christ, 
In 1 Corinthians 12, gift ministry is given by the Holy Spirit to individuals, but here, gift ministry is given by the Father to the local assembly. And each of these gifts has to do with a function within the local assembly. Those last ones show that for certain. Ministering, exhortation, uh, giving, uh, leading or organizing, uh, those things have to do with an organized assembly of believers. All right. So each of us functions then, Peter says, according to the ability which God gives. And we may find ourselves, and of course much has been said in recent years and in this assembly for that matter regarding these gifts. They're often called motivational gifts. I believe that Bill Gothard coined that expression originally, but certainly it's a good one. And uh, these are those ministries which most readily manifest themselves uh, in the local assembly. And people are simply, by the Spirit, prone toward doing these things. Men who are deacons, for example, uh, are men who have the motivation to serve. They just want to do that. You don't have to urge them to do it. Did you ever notice, notice this about an evangelist? You don't have to make an evangelist evangelize. He just does it because that's in his heart. Doesn't mean he has to get before a crowd of people and, and preach and give an invitation. Now, that's a motivation. That's born of the Lord. Not everybody does that. You try to do that, you'll fall flat on your face. You've got to move within the sphere of the ability which God gives. And I cannot emphasize that too much because I think there are a lot of believers that are self-condemned because they try to walk in terms of somebody else's example. And in doing so, Paul said, comparing ourselves with ourselves judging ourselves by ourselves, we are not wise. You know what happens when we compare ourselves with ourselves? Either on the one hand, we fall short and we're greatly condemned. You know, oh my, I can't do what that guy does. Well, I wish I could do it. I just can't. I've tried, I can't. Greatly condemned. Or, we excel and we say, thank God I'm not as other men. <laughs> so we're either arrogant or condemned, one of the two, when we, when we compare ourselves with ourselves. The same thing is true with churches. Uh, you, you cannot do that. You must walk in the ability which God gives and recognize that your responsibility is to have your own heart right before the Lord, and then you do what comes to hand. And if it doesn't come to hand, it'll come to somebody else's hand. You don't have to intrude upon somebody else's ministry and uh, push doors in, if you would, to accomplish uh, the uh, uh, purposes of God. Okay, well, I've really consumed a lot of time with that. Now, I've got another paper for you, and in just a few minutes we have left, I want to go ahead and give this to you if I may. And next time we come together, I'll elaborate on this a little more, and I'll give you some sheets that will help with those gift ministers, perhaps. Now, this sheet is on the seven judgments. So let me get back to First Peter here. In verse 5 of 1 Peter 4, you have the statement, They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now the they that's referred to is, of course, the unregenerate. 
if you put it in the context, all these people who think it's strange that you don't run with them, uh, you're no longer doing the will of the Gentiles. And while uh, ethnically you're still Gentiles, the Apostle Paul, as well as Peter here, categorizes you as outside of that sphere of the Gentiles now. There's three kinds of people God deals with, Jew, Gentile, and Church of God. So here you're outside of that sphere, and it's those in verse uh, 5 that are unregenerate that are being judged. And I'm not going to take some the time to go into uh, the 20th chapter of Revelation right now, but the last paragraph of the 20th chapter of Revelation addre addresses the great white throne judgment, the unregenerate dead being raised to face that throne, and the books being opened, and they are judged out of those things that are written in the books. God keeps records, and men will give an account. The purpose of that judgment is not to determine if they will go to hell, but the purpose of that judgment is to determine the degree of their punishment. Remember Jesus said, He that knew his master's will and did it not is beaten with many stripes. He that knew not his master's will and, and uh, did it not is beaten with few stripes. Both are beaten, but to a different degree according to knowledge. Now in that context, he's talking about believers, his servants. In the context of Revelation 20, he's talking about unregenerate, but they're all judged in accordance with their deeds. And it is a just judgment. And that's what he's talking about in chapter 4 and verse 5 of 1 Peter. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And there will be in that day no excuses. All he's intending to do is to expose their heart before them. But now with regard to the believer, if he'll come over please to verse 16, uh, I'm sorry, 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now I want you to keep your finger there and come back with me to Ezekiel 9 for a moment. Ezekiel 9. Regarding this judgment beginning at the house of God, it's always a principle when God is prepared to visit judgment, he's going to start with his people. Chapter 9, verse 1. Then he called out in mine hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near each with his deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with a linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. And they went in and stood beside the bronze altar. And now the glory of the God of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over the abominations that are done within it. Now we're talking about his city and his people, but there are certain ones of them that cry out because of the abominations. Others are not. To the others, he said, verse 5, in my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have pity. Utterly slay old and young, men and maidens, little children and women. Do not come near anyone upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. And so they began with the elders who were before the temple. God begins with his own house. You remember Revelation chapter 7. Uh, well, I can't get into that. Oh, 
In any case, there's another case of his marking out those that are faithful. Uh, Daniel uh, speaks of, of uh, God dealing in judgment with those who work deceitfully against the covenant. And what it is is making a distinction uh, between the faithful and the unfaithful and what is his and what isn't. You remember Balaam is referred to, I'm getting a feel now, but you remember that Balaam was referred to as a prophet of Jehovah? And the scripture tells us that when the children of Israel invaded the land of Moab and they destroyed the Moabites, that Balaam, son of Beor, was killed with them. The book of the prophet Zephaniah says, I will destroy the stumbling blocks with the wicked. He's talking about his people. I will destroy the stumbling blocks with the wicked. So judgment begins at the house of God. And where shall the sinner and the ungodly appear? All right. What I've given you is a list of the seven judgments. And uh, obviously each one of these is a lesson in itself. And so I don't want to labor it unnecessarily, but if I may just quickly go through it in the minute or two we have left. First of all, judgment of sin at the cross. Now you notice I do not give you references regarding the cross. That's quite unnecessary. You all know where they are. What I do want to emphasize in Colossians 1.20 and 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the work of the cross for the child of God in judging sin once for all. All sin, past, present, and future, went to the cross in the person of Christ. And now redemption is not predicated on whether or not you're a sinner, else all of us would end up in hell. Now judgment is predicated on what will you do with Jesus, who is called Christ. He's paid for the sin of Adam. He's paid for our sins individually. And now he calls us to himself. And we are either in the first man, Adam, and condemned, or in the last Adam and standing in his righteousness. Secondly, the believer's self-judgment of 1 Corinthians 11. This, of course, addresses the responsibility of the child of God to deal with those sins that come up in his life. As Paul, uh, I'm sorry, John tells us, 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9, if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's our responsibility before the Father to walk in the light and to confess sins that come up in our lives. Otherwise, communion with the Father is immediately terminated. If I tolerate a known sin, communion with the Father is terminated. Now, I don't want to uh, take time, extensive time with this either, but remember, there are those sins the believer gets into he's not aware he has. There are those areas you come short of God's purpose and you're not aware. You'll probably find out down the line, but you may not be aware of it immediately. God calls us into account for what we know, not for what we don't know. Nonetheless, it is a shortcoming. The judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10, is that point at which, of course, every believer will be judged for those things done in the body of Christ, whether it's useful or useless, good or bad, profitable or unprofitable. Sin is not the issue here. Only useful or useless works, as pointed to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, we must all pass through the fire, and the wood hand, the stubble will be burned up, the gold, silver, and the precious stone will be preserved I'd like sometime in our assembly to address another lesson on the judgment seat of Christ I think it needs to be reemphasized uh, the fourth one the judgment on the nation of Israel referred to Romans chapter 11 verse 25 and 26 but of course expounded on extensively in Joel's prophecy not to mention the last six chapters of Isaiah Isaiah chapter 2 just uh, it, it is uh, broadly enumerated and the whole prophet Ezekiel addresses himself particularly chapter 20 
addresses himself to that restoration of that nation and their chastening in order to restore them. Then the judgment on the nations. Jesus refers to this, of course, in Matthew 25, 31 and 32. Uh, that whole message, the whole parable regarding the judging of the sheep and the goats, that is not an individual judgment, that's a national judgment. And the basis of judgment is uh, how they dealt with his brethren or the Jews. Remember this, as I may state it as a parenthesis, individual judgment is always predicated on what will you do with Jesus who is called Christ. National judgment is always predicated on what have you done with Israel. Nations are judged regarding how they dealt with Israel. Individuals are judged with regard to how they dealt with Christ. Uh, the sixth one, the judgment on angels. 1 Corinthians 6, 3, and you're going to do that, by the way, and that's a happy thought. And then finally, the seventh judgment on the unrighteous world, referred to 1 Corinthians 6, 2, but then in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, the great white throne judgment that we just referred to. And by the way, let me mention that Jesus Christ is going to be sitting on that great white throne judgment. John 5, 22, the Father judges no man, but he's committed all judgment into the hands of the Son. Okay. You all have been very patient today. I, I really intended to get uh, finished with this book, if I could, before we broke for the holidays, and hopefully we'll be able to do that. The 15th of December, by the way, will be the last meeting before uh, or uh, until January. Okay? We'll skip next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again in Jesus' name for your word. We pray you'll give it clarity, that you'll unravel any confusion we may have caused in all of this material. And we ask our Father that you might teach us by your spirit the order of your scripture, the harmony of your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I should have asked, do you have any questions? I'm almost afraid to ask after all that. <laughs> Well, I hope all that's useful. And next week I'll try to bring you the paper that I didn't bring you uh, regarding, or the week after.